Question for you. Who was 334 years old this week? Well, not years old. Whose 334th birthday was it this week? Wasn't anyone in this room before you start looking around? Any idea? Who was 334 years old? Anyone? Anyone be looking at Google this week? Not Isaac Newton. Not Mozart. Get the closest yet. Bach. Here we go. It didn't actually look like that, just in case you were wondering. But Google were really clever this week. If you, if they, I don't know whether this is still up on their search engine, but if you clicked onto it, you could compose in the style of Bach. Did anyone have a go? No? Oh, dear me. I'll show, I'm going to demonstrate what you can do. I couldn't do it live. I'm going to show you how it worked, okay? So just, I will just come sit at the keyboard for a moment. What you could do is you could put in your own little tune. And then it would make it sound like Bach by adding three voices underneath it. Because what Bach was a genius at was turning quite drab hymn tunes into most amazing pieces of music. So here's an example. Anyone know this hymn tune? Some of you might know it. Is, it, is that exciting? Is it a thrilling melody that sets the, the pulse racing and the beauty? Not particularly, it's just a load of notes, isn't it? Listen what Bach does to it. Sounds a bit different, doesn't it? Wait. <laughs> I'm not going to play anymore. A tune on its own doesn't say a great deal. When you put the harmony into it, when you get the depth and the richness behind it, it starts to change things. If you were here last week, we were um, starting our Lent series looking in Mark's Gospel, and throughout, the, throughout Lent, we're going to be journeying with the Gospel writer Mark to some of these key events that lead up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And last week we were in um, chapter 8 and we were looking at this question from chapter 8 verse 29. That first of all Jesus asked to Peter, but also that I believe Jesus asked to each of us, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What is your answer to that question? Peter's answer, in many ways, was the correct one. He said, well you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the one everyone in Israel has been hoping would come. But as we saw last week, although he gave the right answer, his understanding of what that answer meant actually wasn't right. He came to it with a kind of first century Jewish mindset that was looking for a military Messiah. In the bit between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was this bloke called Judas Maccabeus, who had actually managed to, to free um, the Jewish people from um, one of the empires that had succeeded from the empire of Alexander the Great. And people were longing for another figure, but a better figure than that. They were longing for a Messiah who would come and get rid of the Romans. A saviour, yes, but primarily one who would chuck the Romans out. And so what um, Peter does is he almost gives a very one-dimensional answer to who Jesus is. It's a bit like a broken-up melody that actually isn't that well-written, because it's not quite the correct answer, but without that depth of harmony underneath it. It doesn't yet sing as to who Jesus is. And then after Peter's declaration, Jesus went on to tell them that he would be rejected, he would die, and he would be raised to life three days later. Now, if you were Peter listening to that, you'd have thought, what? Are you sure, Jesus? Is this really what Messiah does? Is this really 
who the Christ will be. Because nobody at this point was thinking that the Messiah would be an Isaiah 53 suffering servant. And then all this talk of being raised, again, just confusing. What on earth was all that about? Now, we know how this story ends. We know that Jesus goes to the cross. We know that he gets raised again on Easter Sunday. We know that sin will be defeated, that death itself will be defeated, and the powers of darkness are defeated. Peter and the other disciples at this point don't know that. They are living in the here and now. They didn't know what following Jesus would mean. And they certainly had no idea what being raised from the dead would mean. There was an idea in Jewish thinking of resurrection, but it was resurrection at the end of all things. It wasn't resurrection like Jesus would be raised. So just put yourself into Peter's shoes for a moment, and then we will read the passage that we're looking at this morning. He's already confused. Do you ever feel confused in life? Peter was incredibly confused. He was confused about who Jesus was. He was confused about what Jesus had said. He was confused about what he had said and then Jesus' response. And now you get these amazing events that we're going to look at about the transfiguration. So let's have a look at the passage, which is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 10. It will appear on the screen. If somebody's got a church Bible there, do you want to just shout out what page it's on? 956, if you want to follow it in the church Bible. So it's entitled The Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had raised from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead would mean. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? Absolutely incredible passage of Scripture. And it's it's an event that is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, They're all very similar accounts. If you have time um, later today, it's worth comparing. Um, There's different bits of details in each one. But I want to look at sort of three very simple questions from this passage. First of all, what happened? What was was this event? Secondly, why did it happen? And so what? What do we do with it? It's not obviously um, sort of easy to think, well, actually, how do we apply this to our everyday life? But let's have a go at seeing what we, we do with it. So let's ask that question, first of all, what? What is going on here? They're up this mountain. This is um, the Mount of the Transfiguration, where it's traditionally believed these events took place. And they're up there on the mountain. Jesus is there with Peter, James, and John, the three of his closest disciples, the inner circle of the disciples. He's up there. You can imagine, if you're on the top of that mountain, um, it would be quite isolated. You, you wouldn't be there with the hustle and bustle of the towns and the things going on. It's quiet. It's slightly cut off. And when they're here, Jesus is transfigured. That's an interesting word. The Greek word is metamorpho, from which we get metamorphosis, the meaning changed into something else. 
And it was a popular word that people would use in the first century. Have we got any sort of classical scholars in today who've read Ovid's Metamorphoses? Anybody? So we don't know it's Bach's birthday. We don't know it's... No one's read it. We're, we're, we're very uncultured. I've never read it, but I just thought there might be somebody here who had. But apparently these poems talk about people being metamorphosized into other things, being changed into other things. So that there's a story of a man being changed into an animal. I think it's a woman being changed into an ant and a rather unfortunate man who gets turned into a mushroom. Um, can't imagine that was a particularly enticing change to go through. So this was a word that people knew. It was a word that was in sort of everyday usage. But the transfiguration of Jesus is not like that. Jesus isn't changed into something that he isn't. But rather, it's as if the curtain is pulled back, and Peter, James, and John, for a few incredible moments, get to see Jesus as he really is. They get to see that Jesus, who they know as a man, is both fully man and fully God at the same time. Now they get this powerful revelation of the divinity of Jesus. Because everything that goes on in this passage, every bit of the writing indicates that Jesus is fully God. This passage does two things. It is both history, you know, it's an event that actually happens in time and space, but it's also laden with symbolism. You know, I think in the way that we sort of think, we, we tend to think either things are symbolic or they've actually happened, but they can't be both. You know, I'm wearing a wedding ring here. I don't know if I can take it off so you can see it, but there it is. There's my wedding ring. Um, I've had this for just under 19 years when me and Claire got married, and it's a symbol, you know, the wedding service, the wedding ring is a symbol of, of sharing, of covenant, of love. But of itself, that is not love, is it? It's a piece of gold. It's a symbolism of something else that is going on at a deeper level. What we get at the transfiguration is both hugely symbolic, but it's actually happening as well. So it's those two things combined. Because there were several links going back here, right back to the Old Testament, when God revealed his glory to Moses on Mount Sinai. Where on the same sort of thing, on the mountain... There is the tangible presence of God. There is the cloud that represents the presence of God. There is the light. There are all those things in Exodus that we find here in the Transfiguration. Our boys um, have given me a new nickname recently. And I'm going to let you into a secret on the promise that you never, ever call it me. (laughs) What they've decided they want to call me is Shiny. Now, those of you who are blessed in the way that I am with it, the head that is clean of hair, will know that shining is something we do well. I'm looking around the room, and I can see some proudly glistening heads. Because as a human being, if we have skin, which all of us do, we can reflect light. We all, to some degree, reflect light. Some of us do a better job of it than others, but we can reflect light. The Bible also tells us that actually as a human being, if we enter into the presence of God, we can radiate God as well. Look at this from Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had just spoken with the Lord. Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses. His face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. See, what had happened was Moses had spent so long in the presence of God that the radiance of God was then shining back from him onto other people. But the transfiguration is not like that. Jesus isn't a reflector of God's radiance. 
His glory is his own because he is God. Jesus radiates from himself because he is God himself. And he says in Mark's Gospel that his clothes become dazzling white. I love Mark's little reference point there. Whiter than anyone could bleach them. You know, this is not a daz moment. This is a moment that goes beyond what a human being can do. In Matthew's account of the same um, events, it will say that his face shines, that Jesus radiates the glory that is his as the Son of God. And this whole idea of light is consistently used through Scripture to denote God. What are the first words that God speaks in the whole of the Bible? Let there be light. And there was light. And as you go through, you go into John 1, when it says, Jesus is the light of the world. The light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. We get this from 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. And here is Jesus, the Son of God, in dazzling light and brightness. And then in verse 4, we get Elijah and, a Moses, and Moses appearing with Jesus. Not a real sort of everyday occurrence, this. This is something totally um, different, totally unique. And they represent, uh, many commentators suggest, and I think rightly so, they represent the Old Testament law, that's Moses, and the Old Testament prophets, that's Elijah. To suggest that actually Jesus comes to fulfill all the hopes of Israel. Jesus comes as a fulfillment of all that has gone before. And they're talking. There are times when I wish the Gospels would tell us a bit more. I'd love to know what they were saying to one another. But we don't get that kind of level of detail here. And so you've got this scene of an unimaginable splendor that is happening in time and space. And then, enter stage left, Peter. Peter is always an interesting character in the Gospels, isn't he? Peter is already confused by this point, as to who Jesus is. We, we sort of can work that out through the narrative. And he has suddenly experienced both the divinity of Christ, and now he knows that actually this is something to do with the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So what does he do? Does he worship? Does he fall face down? Does he um, just, there in awestruck silence? No. In sort of typical Peter fashion, he sticks his foot right in it and says, it is good for us to be here. Well, that's all right. Let's put up three shelters, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Now, some writers suggest that actually what Peter is doing is being deeply thoughtful and theological, that he's thinking back into Exodus, and he's thinking about the tabernacle and how God's um, presence dealt in a tent, and he's wanting to reflect that moment. I, I don't think it's anything like that at all. I just think he does not know what to say. And so he blurts something out that we then look at and think, eh? What, what's going on here? What are you saying? I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation, I'm sure we all do, where you just don't know what to say to somebody. And you get that kind of awkward social moment when it's like, what do I say? How do I respond to, to what somebody's just said to me? Um, I got a phone call, I think it was Wednesday this week, from a PA company, a you know, sound PA company. Um, me, Alison and Richard had been to the Christian Resources Exhibition and we were looking at different companies to come and quote um, for the PA system here. And one of them kindly rang me back. And so I get this phone call, answer the phone. And they go, hello, is that Jonathan? I went, yeah, this is Jonathan. I'm from such and such PA company. And then silence. And I'm like thinking, well, you've rung me? 
you know, it's for you to tell me why you've rung me. And there was just this slightly awkward moment when you're thinking, well, well what do I say? Do, do I dive in and sort of say, well, have you rung me about this? I did in the end because the silence was getting embarrassing. Peter does this on a whole different level. He sort of puts his foot into it and you get this slightly awkward um, sort of element to this account. So what is he doing? Why does he say what he's doing? Well, there are several possibilities. One is that he just hasn't got a clue what he's saying. And so he just blurts out anything that he's thinking of. There might be a bit more to it. It might be that actually he's thinking, well, could we just capture this moment now? You know, if we build some shelters, perhaps we could keep Elijah and Moses. You know, these are great people to have with you. These are the sort of the A-list celebrities of the ancient Jewish people. If they're here with, the, with Jesus the Christ, people will actually listen to us. Or perhaps he's just thinking, well, perhaps this is the coming kingdom. Perhaps it's now happened. Perhaps Jesus will now bring in his rule and reign. And so we need to have houses for these three people to live in because the coming kingdom is now here. Whatever happened, and we don't really get much insight into that, this certainly changed Peter. And we'll find out in a few moments when we read from Peter's um, second epistle later on. But I think there is something here for us as we reflect on this experience. There are times when we follow Jesus that perhaps not in quite so dramatic a way as this. But we will have mountaintop experiences. You know, there are times in my life when I have felt that God has been really close. It may be that it's an answer to prayer. You know, I believe as a church, we've seen some incredible answers to to prayer recently. As we've prayed, we've seen healing, we have seen um, answers to prayer in different ways. It may be that as you're you're reading the Bible, that, that actually you feel that God suddenly speaks to you from the Word, and it feels like God is just speaking right into your heart and your life and your situation. And it's that mountaintop. It's that mountaintop of knowing that God is real. Or it might be that, you know, somebody speaks an encouraging sort of prophetic word over your life, and you suddenly realize that God loves you at a whole level that perhaps you've not, you've not realized before. And those can be the mountaintops. You know, we've already heard a little bit about Thursday night um, and the church meeting this morning. But for me, the mountaintop was not about what we do with the building. This is just the building. But it was that sense of unity amongst us that actually the Holy Spirit had brought us to a place where we could say it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. When you're on the mountaintop, though, it can be easy to want to capture it, can't it? And we can spend lots of time trying to recreate mountaintop experiences. Perhaps, you know, you, you were, um, had a, an amazing experience of God at spring harvest one year. So every year you trundle back to spring harvest to try and recapture that experience. Or perhaps it was something else, and you're constantly trying to get back to that place where God was moving in your life in an incredible way. But actually, what this account tells us is that although Jesus is with us on the mountaintop, the verses that follow has Jesus back down the mountain, dealing with an evil spirit, dealing with the mess of the world, dealing with all those problems that all of us face. I think it's just a reminder here that Christ will be with us on the mountaintop, but he's also with us in the valley moments. And so today, whether you're on the mountaintop or on the valley, Jesus is with you. Jesus walks with you. He stands with you. He journeys with you. So we get to verse 7. A cloud appears. Again, the language of the cloud takes us back to the Exodus accounts. The cloud that was on Mount Sinai, the cloud that led the people through the desert, the pillar of cloud that represented the presence of God. And out of the cloud, the voice of the Father speaks, this is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. 
Echoes of Jesus' baptism there as well. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. We could probably preach a lot of sermons just on those three words, listen to him, couldn't we? Are we listening to Jesus? Do we know who Jesus is? Are we listening to him? Are we doing what he says? And then verse 9, it's all over. The mountaintop experience is gone. Jesus, the very earthly Jesus now, who is both God and man, descends from the mountain, and there we get back into the ministry that he has been called to do on this earth. Why did this happen? Why did it happen? Yeah, I just wonder how often we have a bit of a one-dimensional view of Jesus. That we have that kind of view that is, is just the melody line. We've got some of it, but there isn't that depth of, of harmony going on underneath. Have we got any football fans in the room? I'm presuming we've got lots of football fans. Surely some of you must have watched England play on um, Friday night. Or were you too busy reading Ovid's Metamorphosis or whatever it was called? Ovid's Metamorphosis. Let's get it the right way around. When England were playing on um, Friday night, who was the hero of the match? Sterling. Sterling. Hat-trick. You know, three brilliant goals out of sort of general play. Now, could Sterling have scored those goals without everybody else? Yes. (laughs) One man takes on the Czech Republic. (laughs) Probably not. There was one statistic that said that, was it one of his goals, 10 of the England players had a touch of the ball in the run-up to it, and it was 25 passes, I think, of the ball. The depth was far more than one player. And it was just reminding me, actually, you know, the depth of who Jesus is needs to resonate deep within us, that he is God, he is man. He is all that this passage tells us to be. And Peter saw this face to face, and it did transform his thinking. Said we'd come back to Peter. Just look at what he says in 2 Peter 1, 16 and 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we were told about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Which event was it that stuck in Peter's mind when he wanted to tell others about who Jesus was? It was this one. The transfiguration. This is after the resurrection, after the crucifixion, after the ascension, after the coming of the Spirit. This was still a critical moment in the life of Jesus. Eventually, Peter got it. Eventually, he realized who Jesus was. And then in verse 9 of Mark chapter 9, we get the, um, the instruction from Jesus, don't tell anyone until after the resurrection. Don't speak about this event until later. Why? Well, you know, we can't understand Jesus just from one snippet. And we certainly can't understand Jesus without first going to Calvary, without seeing what happens on the cross when Jesus dies for the sins of the world. Nor can we understand who Jesus is without journeying to the empty tomb and seeing that he is the victory over death. Why did this happen? Why did it happen? Well, it's so Peter and the other disciples, and then more latterly ourselves, can capture that glimpse of the divinity of Christ so that we know who it is who would die on Calvary and who it is who would be raised from the empty tomb. So that question again, who do you say I am? 
Is our answer this answer? Have we got the depth? Have we got, the, if you like, the harmony under the melody of who Jesus is? Is there that depth of understanding? So to the final question, so what? This is a, a passage that I think actually, if, we, if we're to understand it, it needs to do something to our thinking, if you like, on the big level. It's not kind of small level thinking stuff. This is, this is something that changes our view of a lot of things if we get this passage right. But I want to think about particular three areas um, this morning. There are probably many more we could look at. And the first one is this. How do we worship God? How do we worship God? When we worship Jesus, it can be very easy, I think, to sort of just slip into those areas where we think we understand a bit of what Jesus is like. So we might find it easy to say Jesus is love, but then we might struggle with other um, items sort of of his... Um, um, sorry, it's got my words mixed up there. It can be very easy for us to think about, say, Jesus is love. But then we get all sort of tied up. We think, well, how can Jesus be judge as well? Or how can Jesus be divine as well as human being? And it can be very difficult sometimes because we can just get focused in on those bits we think we understand. We can look at Mark 9 and think, well, this feels a bit odd. Have I really grasped? the Jesus who is in these passages. You know, it won't do biblically just to have a very one-dimensional view of Jesus. We have to view Jesus as Scripture illustrates him to us. Will we journey into the Bible? Will we be enriched by our understanding through the words of Scripture so our worship becomes more real, that we worship Jesus as he really is? Second thing, evangelism. The other week I was chatting to somebody and um, this wasn't a member of the church but it was somebody who knows what role I have within the church. And they were telling me a bit about a situation in their life. And um, the situation was quite a difficult one and quite often when somebody does that I will say, well, can I pray for you? And I think I'm quite brave when I say that. Then I'm actually thinking about it and thinking, well, I'm a minister. People do tend to expect me to pray so it's probably not that brave after all. Um, But then I suddenly thought, if I pray in this situation without sharing more of actually who Jesus is, all I do is allow that person to have a deficient experience of what they think Jesus is. If I'm not prepared to explain in a bit more detail about what the scriptures say about Jesus, then I just leave them thinking that whatever they think about Jesus is right. The Bible has an awful lot to say about who Jesus is. When we're sharing Jesus, and I hope it is a when, because we're all called to be witnesses. We're not all called to be a Billy Graham, but we're all called to be witnesses to Jesus. Do we share Jesus as the scriptures reveal him? Do we do that? Let's talk confidently about Christ as he is revealed to us in the scriptures. And then thirdly, discipleship. We know what happens at Easter. I don't think for for many of us here today it will come as a surprise on Easter Sunday when we see that Jesus is risen from the dead. I don't think it will come as a surprise that the tomb is empty. We know what's coming. This story, Jesus' history, ends well. It ends in victory. Mark 9 is a pulling back of the curtain, allowing the disciples to see the reality of who they are following. But life in this broken, tired, chaotic, sin-stained world can sometimes be difficult. Life 
can be hard. You may have come into church today and actually you know that this week you, you are facing real health concerns. You may have an appointment with the doctor that you're dreading. Or you may be in here this week and actually you've got issues with relationships in your life. Things that are really weighing you down, they're sort of bearing heavily on you. It may be concerns with your job, it may be concerns with your finances. And it can be difficult and we can get confused and it can weigh really heavily on us. And we can start asking questions, well what is going on Lord? What is going on? Now as I read this passage, I think there's something amazingly encouraging here. If today you are a follower of Jesus, if today you've come to Jesus in repentance and faith, if today you know Jesus as Saviour and Lord, your story, my story, just like Jesus's, ends well. It ends well. It ends in glory with him forever. Now Jesus had an awful long journey to go from the transfiguration to the ascension, and he's still not come back yet, so we're still waiting for the final chapter. There's an awful long way to go yet, but from this moment, we get to see the glimpse that it is going to end as God said it would. Do you have that confidence in your life at the moment, that whatever you are going through today, and it is whatever you are going through, that if you're confident in Christ, it will end in glory. It will end there. Let's be confident as we read this passage and let's keep thinking about who Jesus is, reflecting on the depth of of his character, his nature, and let's ask God to speak into our lives this week, shall we? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you that it gives us a chance to see you as you really are the Son of God, revealed in splendor to us. And Lord, I want to pray that this morning that you will give us great confidence in you. I want to pray particularly if we are struggling this morning in some area of our life, and that's just weighing us down heavily. That just that reminder that our life when we're hidden in Christ, ends in glory. So Lord, encourage us, challenge us, speak to us, we pray. 